Death has died. Love has won. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a joy to be able to sing, to reflect, to be reminded of what Christ has done. And as we continue our worship, what a joy to come together. Even as it's weird, we are still together. Before we start, I just want to take a moment to thank personally, particularly Mark Jacobs and Steve Myers, who have done above and beyond with getting the live streaming set up, with getting the seating, with the range, the entire property committee, the deacons who are here this morning at Deaconesses, thank you all so much for all that you have done to pull this together. If you see them in the upcoming weeks, please give them thanks for all that they have done. It is greatly appreciated. This morning, as we go to God's Word, the one of the you, you cannot find a better passage in the Old Testament. I mean, there are. There's some amazing passages, but the one that is just so gospel-saturated, you cannot find more of Jesus Christ, His cross, and His resurrection than Isaiah 52 and 53. The question I want us to consider this morning is simply this. It's a very theological question. Who killed Jesus? Now that's what we call a loaded question. That is not a simple, oh, they did. It is a complex question. There's multiple different perspectives when we seek to answer and tease out that question. It comp- requires a complex answer. So the first, there's many different. I'm actually going to have five different people, groups, who have killed Jesus. First, physically, the Roman soldiers were the ones who killed Jesus. They were the actual boots-on-the-ground soldiers who drove the nails through his hands and the nails through his feet. Secondly, they did so under the authority of the Roman rulers. It was Pilate who ordered the execution of Jesus And I just thought of another one, actually. The people. The people who said, who cried out, crucify him, crucify him also, were part of that. Another part, Scripture makes clear that the Jewish leaders in rejecting Jesus and his message, that they killed him, they were purposely sought from early on in his ministry to put Jesus to death. Another one, the theological understanding that our sin killed Jesus. It was our sin that he bore upon the cross. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But there's another one. Maybe a more broader perspective that we need to understand. It's one we don't wrestle with as much. It's one that may seem for some a little more controversial. And it is this. That God killed Jesus. It was the plan of God all along. Jesus came to die. He willingly and humbly submitted to the plan. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all agreed and covenanted together to put Jesus to the death for the sins of many. In other words, it was the will of God to kill Jesus. This answer is an important theological question, but we need to go further than this this morning. We need to actually ask the why question. We need to ask the so what question. It was the plan of God to kill Jesus. Why? So what? The title of the sermon is called Crushed for Our Comfort. 
And if I'm honest, the, the sermon title's a little bit misleading. The sermon title, it's, it's, yes, Jesus is crushed for our comfort, but he was more so, he was crushed for our salvation. And as a result of our salvation, we receive his comfort. And when I speak of comfort, I'm not talking about the comfort we are all enjoying on this hot, muggy day, as in, I am so glad that we have central air in our house now. And I really am so glad we have central air in our house now because it provides a level of comfort. But what I'm talking about comfort here is that Jesus Christ, through his death, God, through this plan, provides us eternal comfort. Comfort that is won by Christ at the cross. Comfort that is nothing short of our eternal hope for today and for tomorrow. It is eternal hope, joy-filled comfort. So to answer the question, why was it the will of the Lord to kill Jesus? We must say this. It was the will of the Lord to kill him for the comfort the salvation and eternal joy and hope of all of God's redeemed. Hopefully you see the so what answered in that. The Lord killing Jesus for our salvation and eternal comfort should transform our entire lives. Isaiah 52, beginning of verse 13 through 53, verse 12, John just read for us. I want us, as we go through that passage, to focus on two things as we see that it was the will of God for Jesus to die for a comfort. Two points, so to speak. First, the person of the suffering servant. The person of the suffering servant. In Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 3, we'll see the person of the suffering servant. The second is that this, the plan of the suffering servant. In verses 15, Chapter 53, verses 4 through 12, the plan of the suffering servant. In the person and in the plan of the suffering servant, we see God's broader purpose to bring comfort, eternal comfort, eternal joy, eternal hope to God's people. So let's begin with prayer. Father, help us, Spirit, help us, Jesus, help us to see your plan to see that you and ultimately from before the foundation of the world that you O oh god are for us your people help us to know that you a loving covenant keeping faithful steadfast unbreakably loving god have set your love and affection upon a people and it was your plan to send jesus to redeem us from the pit and to raise us up to new life in Christ. Help us, we pray, to see the beauty of the gospel this morning in Isaiah. We thank you for your word, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. To begin, the, we need to grasp the comfort offered to us in the gospel. We need to look first to the person of the suffering servant. Now we're introduced to the idea of a chosen servant all the way back actually in Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 14. He's described as the upheld and chosen by the Lord and the Lord delights in him. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth and establish justice. And his word says he will not grow weary until justice has been established throughout the earth. This is the mission of the chosen servant. He comes to help God's people to establish justice. But though the servant is first mentioned in chapter 42, back in Isaiah 40, 
Isaiah offers us a picture of what the Lord is preparing to do to help his people prepare the way of the Lord. For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And throughout chapters 40 to 41, God's people are commanded to fear not. The Lord is coming. He will be present and he will bring salvation. And that will comfort his people. So fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10 The Lord is coming to redeem his people. And for the first time in Isaiah, in our passage, we have the curtain pulled back to reveal a shocking, unexpected picture of the servant. It was a picture of of a suffering servant. Look at verses, chapter 52, verses 13 to 53, 3. The picture of the suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and from his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This, brothers and sisters, is a picture of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, and it's not a pretty picture. It's a shocking picture. It's actually a scandalous picture. His appearance is described as being so marred that he no longer looked human. He was not recognizable. And I believe this refers not just to his physical nature, but particularly to his life and specifically what he went through upon the cross. It was a scandal. It was not supposed to be this way. The idea of death upon a cruel Roman cross was scandalous to the Jewish people. Paul would later say, Christ redeemed us. How? From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This curse meant to be cursed by God, to receive the full wrath, judgment, and displeasure of the Lord. Even though... The servant was marred beyond recognition. He is exalted. Three times Isaiah describes the suffering servant as one who is exalted. He shall be high, he shall be lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And I believe this has a twofold fulfillment. What we've called humiliation and exaltation. First, Jesus is physically lifted up upon the cross. And it is not in glory and power and might, but in shame and humility and weakness. But he is nonetheless lifted up. He is exalted in humility and brokenness. Just like that redemptive serpent lifted up by Moses in the wilderness. The Son of Man is lifted up and all who look upon him 
are saved. But the second point where Jesus is exalted is that it is future. There is a coming day, the day of all days when he will be lifted up on the cross because he rose again in power and might. Jesus will be highly exalted. So Paul writes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And what that means for us is that one day, one day every knee should bow, one day every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will be fully, completely, and perfectly exalted, high and lifted up. This picture of a marred suffering servant, though, is just untenable. It's impossible for us to process so Isaiah 53.1, he says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah's point here is that in order to understand and begin to process this idea of a coming Messiah as a suffering servant, one needs to have revelation from God. One needs to have believed in it. Otherwise, this view of the coming Messiah would be crafted and shaped into our own making. And is that not what we do? This is a fascinating comment on our sinful human hearts. We who are made in the image of God have a perpetual tendency to make God into our own image. We see this in both subtle and overt ways from white Jesus in our children's Sunday school curriculum to black Jesus in African-American churches, and now gay Jesus has popped on the scene. The point is this. We make Jesus and God into our own image. This picture of a marred, broken, suffering servant is not one we would come up with on our own. It defies reality. Such a picture is it's a scandal, and it can only come to us by the revelation of God. And even with such a passage as Isaiah 53, the suffering servant was abandoned by his disciples and rejected by the Jews. It was a scandal. They wanted a reigning king, not a suffering servant. Oh, how we shape Jesus into our own image. Continues by saying that Jesus grew up with no form or majesty. The king of all kings and lord of all lords, born in an insignificant town to an insignificant family in a manger, no less. Even then, there was no beauty in him that people would desire him. You remember Saul, the beautiful, powerful, tall, handsome king that the people wanted. Jesus would never be elected as king based on what he looked like. Now, this is interesting. We do this in American culture all the time, don't we? You turn on the TV, it's all full of the beautiful people. That's one thing I can appreciate about British TV. They just put ordinary people on the screen. Their actors are simply ordinary people, but not so in America. We want the beautiful. We want the powerful. We're a bit more like Israel in that regards. We want those who are with form, with majesty. But Jesus comes with no form, no majesty, born without beauty because no one desired him. And that led to him being despised and rejected. People hid his, their faces from them. He was not esteemed. He wasn't honored. He wasn't appreciated. Even more so, as we'll see, he was acquainted with grief. Isaiah describes him as the man of sorrows. And remarkably, in all of this, this person of the suffering servant, the plan 
of God was fulfilled. The second, the plan of the suffering servant. It is one thing to be struck by the scandal of Christ's marred person. It's another thing to be struck by the scandal of it all. That all of this was a part of God's plan from before the creation of the world. Isaiah is clear. It was the purpose and plan of God for Christ to suffer as our sin bearer. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 12, we're just going to break it up into three sections. The first one, verses 5 to 6, is that it was the will of the Lord for Jesus to be our sin bearer. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the plan of God from the beginning for Jesus to bear our sins. Jesus came to die. He came to bear sins. He came to be a ransom for many. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Why was he pierced? Isaiah says, for our transgressions. Why was he crushed? He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6 is key. Why does Jesus come to die? Because we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. We abandoned and forsook the Lord. We become his enemies. We become lost, dead, in trespasses and sins. And Jesus came as the good shepherd to bring us back. He came to die so that we may die with him. He came to rise again so that we may rise with him. He came to call back wayward sinners and bring them into his glorious kingdom to be his beloved children. He does all this in the plan of God by being smitten by God. Now we don't use that language anymore, smitten. Sometimes we'll say that we were smitten by their beauty, but rarely do we say that they were smitten or struck with a heavy blow. But that's the idea. It is exactly what happened to Jesus. Revelation 5, because of Jesus and how he was smitten by God, can only describe him, even in his exalted glory, as the lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. That is Jesus. It is brutal. It is gruesome, it is grisly, shameful, and it is scandalous. And it was the plan of the Lord. Jesus is afflicted by God. The Lord himself lays upon Jesus all our sin. Every sin that you ever committed and will commit has been laid upon the Son of God. Marvel at that for a moment. Marvel at that church. This is why we need to slow down long enough to consider our sins. This is why we must not be too quick to dismiss them and just flippantly say Jesus' blood has covered our sin. Yes, it has, but at cost. Your lustful hearts, your wayward look or longing thought, 
your abuse of your employer's kindness, your angry heart, fill in the blank. Jesus' blood covers your sin. We need to see the weight of our sins have hung Jesus there. We need to grasp that we were straying like sheep, but now, but now because of Jesus' death, he brings us back as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. His chastisement brings us peace. Another word we don't use. Jesus was punished. Jesus was disciplined. Jesus was chastised. And what do we get out of it? Peace. Peace with God that brings us healing. As Peter says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Jesus bore our sins. It was the will of the Lord, his plan all along, for Jesus to be our sin bearer. Secondly, Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, it was the will of God for him to suffer and die. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus' suffering and death is predicted with remarkable clarity and harsh brutality. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. Jesus, having the power of heaven at his disposal, stands before Pilate and his accusers, silent, because it was the plan of God. He is taken away, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the sins of his people, and he died next to wicked men, and he's buried in the tomb of a rich man. All of this comes true in the crucifixion. But take a look at verse 9. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, Jesus was without sin. He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. In God's plan, the sacrifice had to be perfect, had to be without blemish. Perfection had to bear sin and imperfection. Jesus, the one without sin, had to become the sin bearer and die so that his perfection, his righteousness, will be granted to our account. He took away our sin and exchanged it with his perfect life. And now when the Father looks upon us sinful people, he sees Jesus, his righteousness. All of our sin was put to death with him. We died to sin. And when he rose again, so did we with newness of life. As Paul says in Romans 5, 10 through 11, for the death Christ died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It was Jesus' death and life 
that now brings us dead to sin and alive to God. Because of Christ, the plan of God, we are new creatures in Christ. It was the will of the Lord, the plan all along for Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, to suffer, die, and rise again for our eternal comfort. Third, it was the will of the Lord for Jesus to be both humiliated and exalted, both crushed and lifted up. Look at verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. I cannot think of probably a more striking verse in all of Scripture than that. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, how much it was his will to crush his one and only Son. What a striking phrase. It's God's will to put Jesus to death, to crush, to oppress, to afflict. This is the mind-bending plan of God, and it is for us to call wayward sheep back to the shepherd of our souls. But it's also not just the will of the Lord for Jesus to be crushed. It's the will of the Lord for Jesus to prosper. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. Through Jesus' anguish, many will be counted as righteous. That is us, the people of God. We are counted as righteous because Jesus bore our sin. Notice in verse 12, talks about the suffering servant pouring out his soul to death, but still being alive to receive a portion of the benefits of his death. So here, even here in a small form, Jesus is dead but live again. Even this passage hints at the resurrection. It was the will of the Lord for Jesus to die and rise again, to be humiliated but one day exalted. He has done this for our salvation and for our eternal hope. But why does this matter? What is the marred, suffering servant, the one crushed by the Lord, bearing our iniquity? What does this have to do with us today? Brothers and sisters, God has done this for our comfort, for our eternal comfort, for our hope, for our joy, for our salvation. This is why Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died so that we may truly live. He bore our sins so that we may receive his righteousness. He suffered so that we might receive his eternal comfort. But our eternal comfort begins now. 
It begins in the here and now and in the ordinary of every day. Jesus is our comfort now because he was the suffering servant then. Because he died and rose again for us. We must also consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. His death and his life empower us in the here and now to live lives transformed for his glory and for the good of others. So Paul says to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and we now become the instruments of God for his righteousness. Let me end by offering us two questions to consider this week. Paul says in Romans 5.13 that we are instruments of righteousness for God's righteousness. How, brothers and sisters, may we live as instruments of righteousness in the here and now? And how may we live as those who are created for good works in the ordinary of every day? Ephesians 2.10. In short, how do we live in light of Christ? the suffering servant. Father, may we come to grasp your eternal comfort that you have granted to us by your beloved Son, Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus, you came. Jesus, you died. Jesus, you rose again. You bore our sins upon the tree so that we may have your perfect righteousness. Jesus, your death has killed our sin. Jesus, your resurrection life gives us eternal comfort in the here and now, today, right now. You stand interceding before the Father for our comforts, our hope, our joy, our salvation. And you remain our future hope because of your work on the cross and the Spirit, your work on raising Jesus from the grave Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Spirit. We give you praise for your glorious eternal plan. The plan of a loving Father sending his beloved Son so that through him a people would find redemption by the power of the Spirit. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit. And it's in Jesus, your great, mighty, holy name, that one day will be exalted before the nations, where everyone will cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Allow us to cry out now, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power and might and honor. You alone are worthy, Father. You alone are worthy, Jesus. You alone are worthy, Spirit. May we live lives as instruments of righteousness for your glory and honor. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.